HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. All right, guys, welcome to today's episode of the Nomadic Outdoorsman, and I'm super pumped about this one because I'm joined by a guy named Joel Chrisman. Now, Joel is an adult onset mule deer hunter, if you will, and he has figured this thing out, and it wasn't just like, oh, I figured it out right away. It took him years of honing these skills, and so I'm pumped to share this information with you to hear all of the amazing things that Joel has to say and tips and tricks and strategies and and what it looked like in the early days of trying to chase giant mule deer. And when I say giant, I'm talking like huge. He's he's pursued multiple 220 to 230 inch mule deer, maybe some even bigger than that. And so we're going to jump into this. Hopefully this encourages you guys to not maybe not go to the places that everybody goes when you go out west. And you're going to hear more about that in just a second. So let's jump into this episode. It's going to be a good one. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today is Joel Chrisman and Joel is a self-taught mule deer hunter, but he didn't always start out, or he didn't start out mule deer hunting. He started out bird hunting up in Iowa, um, but since he's moved down to Colorado. So, Joel, I'm going to pick your brain today about a ton of different stuff when it comes to mule deer hunting, because I am still a rookie uh, in the West. Not a, not a problem. I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, uh, first off, thanks for being on the show. Um, would you, would you mind just starting off by sharing a little bit about your history, kind of how you got into Western hunting or, or what hunting looked like for you growing up? Yeah. Um, grew up in like a farming town, um, in like North, North East Iowa, little town Grundy center. Um, it was really all, um, seed corn and beans. So the deer hunting really wasn't big there. Um, it was really pheasants, uh, rabbits, birds, um, some waterfowl. And, you know, I remember going out um, with my oldest brother and actually my middle brother. Um, and they'd take me along as a little kid. I was like three years old. They'd leave me in the car. Um, <laughs> you know, they'd go walk a fence row. Um, and, the first gun, and I can't remember the, the name of it, but it was a lever action single shot um, load from the top. And I would, you know, go shoot at rabbits, go shoot at squirrels. And um, from there, got in, you know, when I was a little bit older than uh, chasing pheasants with a bolt action 20 gauge. Oh, and, that's awesome. And that, and that sadly, my mind slipping me, uh, but I remembered the brand of that gun. Um, but yeah, just grew up bird hunting, um, chasing rabbits, uh, squirrels. Um, you know, as a little boy, I remember this one wood pile that I, I had a game with a rabbit for two years. I never killed him. Um, 
And every weekend um, I would go find him and I'd miss him. And it was like this game. It was, you know, a couple of years. You know, as a little boy, the things you remember is pretty funny. Um, yeah. So really just a small game hunter. Um, some family friends were deer hunters, but, you know, I went along with them, sat in a tree. Um, but yeah, just was really small game, but always read the outdoor life magazine, sports afield and seeing, um, seeing the West. Bull deer, antelope, elk. And that was always like, that was, even though I wasn't a big game hunter, that was always something in the back of my mind. I want to do this one day. And yeah, so that, that was kind of a cool thing. Um, and I got a chance to go West. Um, I was a pretty good football player in, in high school, good athlete. And uh, I went to California college to go play football um, at USC. Um, and every winter, my buddies that I grew up with, you know, all went to different colleges, but we would meet in Colorado um, for spring break. Our, oddly enough, our, our spring breaks would match up and we would go to Brackenridge. Nice. And eight, eight guys in, in uh, a one bedroom, um, one bedroom place we, we would rent. And uh, yes, that was my, my taste of the, of the Rockies, let's say. And I always knew I was going to move at some point I was going to live in Colorado and, and, you know, live the dream of my hunting dream and fishing dreams. Yeah. That's awesome. Colorado. I mean, I feel like it has that draw for anybody who visits there, whether it's year after year or just one time, like you see those Rocky mountains, you see the change in terrain, even living on the front range, you might not be up in the mountains, but to just wake up and look at them every day, there's not many people who go out there and, don't say like, Hey, I'm going to move here one day. <laughs> I know we fell oh, big no. into that for sure. Like we moved out there for a couple of years and we absolutely loved it. But, um, yeah, the, there's something about the West. Uh, it's awesome to live there. And then like, even now moving back to the Midwest, I was just out there actually, me and my family were out in Fort Collins, uh, two weeks ago, we went up to Breckenridge, did, did some time on the mountain. Um, and it's a spot that we go back to several times a year now. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things where, you know, I originally went to Colorado in uh, junior high. I was in, I was a Boy Scout, and we came out for a Boy Scout camp to Colorado, and that's really you know kind of like started that started that love um, with Colorado. Um, but yeah, every time I would I would fly in to go meet buddies for a ski trip, and even though we didn't ski a lot, it was more just getting together. You know, I always felt like I was at home. Yeah. You know, it was like God's country. I mean, how can't you love Colorado? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm sure it's quite the change going from Iowa out to Colorado. I mean, being other places there in between. But, yeah, just the, the vast difference, even like when we drive, because we, we typically drive everywhere with two kids. We don't hop on planes very often. We just load up in the car and go but driving across Kansas and you're just like, there's no way this is going to lead to anything cool. And then all of a sudden you hit those Rocky mountains and it gets pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, it's uh yeah. Our, our trip would be usually through Nebraska, but yeah, Western Kansas, Nebraska. I mean, it's, it's not a real scenic view. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you see, as you, you get a little bit farther West and then you start seeing those mountains like, wow. I mean, it really is, you know, like today, I look out, um, and we got a little bit of snow overnight. It was 60 degrees on Sunday. It was negative three this morning. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just, 
every you love Colorado because you know you just know a couple of days later it'll always be nice. If you didn't like today, just wait two days and it'll be sunny and uh, and 40, 50 degrees hotter. So, yeah. That's awesome. So, so you moved out, you went to college in Col- or in California. And then, um, from there, did you go straight to Colorado? No, I had, uh, I had uh, a few cups of coffee down in Tampa. Um, I, uh, I was a pretty decent football player and I, I played, played three years down, down for the Buccaneers. Um, moved back to California, got married. That didn't take. Um, and then moved to Colorado in 2001. Nice. I've, uh, I've lived quite a few places, um, you know, simple to bussy, uh, bustling, uh, California down to Florida, back to California, and then finally made, uh, made my track to Colorado in 2001. Yeah. So was it, had you picked up mule deer hunting, um, somewhere in the middle of that, or was it, did you wait until you actually moved there? Uh, wait until I actually moved here. Um, that first fall, um, a buddy of mine came out and said, let's go elk hunting. So we bought elk tags and uh, went up there and that was a disaster. He, he thought he'd bring um, He thought he drove out in an RV from California and uh, that slid off the road trying to go, go to the backside of a Keystone Mountain. Had to get that. It was an absolute train wreck. Oh, no. Um, you know, I never, I wasn't big into, in, I mean, big gun, you know, big caliber guns. I'd never spent much time shooting. Um, you know, it was always 22s, you know, things like that. Um, so I got my first, uh, my first 30 out six, um, and that trip, like I said, was a disaster, but we had, I mean, we had fun. Um, and I almost, that, that first year I almost killed, I was 10 seconds late of killing a monster six by six um elk up on keystone mountain it was really cool but i saw mule deer up there and like i said i always had this love of mule deer from you know um outdoor life magazine and sports of field and seeing these pictures and i saw a couple up on the mountains i'm like all right i gotta get you know this is my thing i'm gonna start doing this and originally i would plan on doing with a rifle um living living in denver uh south denver um and started, you know, meeting up with people and kind of talking about hunting. And they said, Oh, you really want to hunt the Eastern Plains? Like the mountains are great, but there's some really big mule deer on the Eastern Plains of Colorado. But I, I realized then you couldn't draw a tag, but every, you know, four or five years with the rifle. Yeah. Um, and I learned about bow hunting and I had, you know, shot a bow, you know, when I was in high school, but it wasn't mine. You know, it didn't fit me. I just knew I could draw it back and you're back then you're shooting fingers. Yep. You know, there was releases back then. Um, and found out about how easy it was to, to pull leftover archery tags. And that kind of kicked off my whole um, mule deer archery hunting quest, let's say. And it was truly a do it yourself. I bought a, I bought a bow. Um, I'm always kind of one of these people that was uh, not a follower, let's say, um, you know, I just have always gone my own way and I always knew Matthews and bear and uh, I think Hoyt, um, you know, with the big bows. And I thought, well, I don't want to do what someone else does. And I, I fell in love with Bowtech and I bought my first Bowtech bow um, and I've been shooting them ever since. I, and I'm, I'm not a person that changes equipment a lot. So yeah. I've only shot, I think five different Bowtechs in 20 years. 
nice. shoot the same. And once you know, it's one of those things where when it starts to lag and speed, then I'll, I'll go to something else. But now I, I found out about you could draw tags for the Eastern Plains without any points. You could, there was, you know, there'd be leftover archery tags in almost every unit. And that's how I kind of got into it. Now it's not like that anymore. I mean, you're not drawing, you don't draw a bow tag or archery tag every year now, but back then there were leftovers for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, even for me being out in Colorado for that short amount of time and going back, like every time I go out there to hunt, I'm thinking like, let's go up in the mountains, let's go up in the mountains. And part of it for me is just the scenery. Even if I don't pull the pull the trigger or draw my bow back, there's something about sitting on top of a mountain glassing for a mile and a half trying to find an animal. Um, but yeah, I feel like as social media, as podcasts, as YouTube has really exploded. People have found out more of those uh, secrets, like hunting Eastern Colorado for big mule deer. Yeah, there's there's a lot of big ones. I mean, the mountains, of course, you have a lot of big ones. It's it's a different type of hunt. Yeah. Um, and you know, if, if you go to the mountains, you better be in shape. Um, I was listening to one of your other podcasts, um, and I I can't remember if it was the uh, your new podcast, the uh, the Western Rookie or not. But you know, it's it's you better be in shape. I mean, you got to train for this. It's, it's it's not something for flatlanders. And when I go up for September elk hunting, you know, I run into a lot of guys from Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, um, Tennessee, and man, those guys you see them it's like, I sure hope. I sure hope you put a little, you know, get, know, you know, know your limits, yeah. but the plan is a lot different. Um, you know, you, you should be able to, you should be out hiking quite a bit too. I mean, it's not a, if you're, if you're rifle hunting, you know, it's, I've seen a lot of guys just drive, just drive roads and get out and shoot. But you know, the stuff that I like to do is I'm hiking back in, you know, a mile, two miles, five miles, um, and some bigger tracks on land. Um, you know, you gotta have, you, you know, cause you're, it's a different, you're, you're walking sand, Basically, you call them the Sand Hill area um, of Eastern Colorado, and it's it's a drag. I mean, that wears on you too. It's yeah. not some because it's you know five thousand feet, you know forty five hundred feet some of those spots and um, above sea level, and that's that's a drag on you too. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, let's talk about strategy a little bit as far as what you do when you go out and hunt, because um, I would imagine a lot of those spots don't have a ton of tree cover or vegetation at all. How are you, how are you able to close the distance on a mule deer with a bow in country like that? Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of it's just, it's finding the deer you want, right? Um, you can, there's different years you have more, you, you have more numbers, less numbers. Um, I do not use trail cams at all, even though there's certain areas where I know they're going to be, it's, I'm not against trail cams. I just kind of like to do it my own way. Um, so in the mornings, I'll do a lot of driving um, because mule deer will move. Um, they will typically, I mean, they'll be in a two to three mile area, sometimes bigger, especially during rut, they'll, they'll move even more. But I get up early and I'm out just driving the country um, and just glassing. And I try to find something I like. And if I don't see something, there's so much, the train is so interesting where it's, it's, it is flat. You have some sand hilly areas, but you can look out a mile out, a mile and a half out and it looks completely flat and there's some dips. Um, it's a lot of this is timing too. I mean, if I drove by five minutes early or five minutes later, 
when, when there's a, you know, five foot depression, there's a good deer in there. And I just missed, I sat there and I glassed it up. I, you know, I glasses this area, um, couple miles and go to drive off and look over your shoulder and I'll catch something out of the corner of my eye and I'll look back and I'm like, there was a good deer there the whole time, but he was in the spot and you completely missed it. And it's, it is, I mean, one thing, one of the first things I learned um, about hunting East is you need good optics. Yeah. I mean, I, my first pair were like some $50 Bushnell junky, like, you know, 10 by 50, that I bought at a, uh, a gun show. Like seriously, they were the junkiest things. And, you know, seeing, seeing an, a, a mass, seeing, you know, something out there, what, what is it? You know, is it just a big fat female, yeah. a big doe? Um, is it uh, a, a junkie, you know, two by three that, you know, you just couldn't tell. And, and I, I gotta tell you this first few years, it was, I was chasing, you know, chasing small deer, but you, yeah. you didn't know poor glass. And over time I learned, I guess they're buying better glass. And then I finally invested in the spotting scope too. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it is a lot of miles driving. Um, Cause there's no reason to go hike back into you know big pasture, sand, sand hill pasture. If there's nothing in there, I mean, you just, you're going to waste two hours, three hours of that. Yep. Um, so yeah, you get, you definitely have to have good, good optics. Um, and you just, yeah, you, it, it's a luck game. I mean, once you know they're there, they're typically going to be in the area, but just to find it, I had access to a, a big private ranch, 30,000 acres. Um, and I Dang. became friends with the family. And the only thing I, the only thing they asked for me is to help them during spring planting corn um, during fall um, picking corn. I'd set the combine. I'd sit in the grain, grain carts, semis driving, you know, driving corn. Um, so I, I, I had the world by the tail like one of the greatest pieces of land for big deer. And I didn't even know it. I didn't realize, <laughs> but it, it's, it, it, it's, it's a tough hunt. I mean, because deer, they're like ghosts. They can oh, be yeah. some of the smartest animals you'll ever see. And some of the smartest animals you'll ever see at the same time. I know it sounds weird, but it's, it's kind of true. No, that makes perfect sense. And I, I fully understand that country, how like you can look out and think, man, I've got this whole place picked apart. But those depressions, the deer are so intelligent when it comes to traveling or bedding down. You know, they're not going to bed down on this point where everybody can see them for two miles. And unless they stand up, they're just gone. We we actually, on this last trip we took, we went to Colorado and then out to Utah. And we were driving through some land in Utah. And it was so wild because, I mean, these valleys were like nothing I had ever seen. I hadn't been to that side of the Rocky Mountains at all. Um, I was always on the front range in Colorado. And so it, the valleys that I would see are pretty narrow canyons. You know, the walls from one side to the other might only be a couple hundred yards. Well, out there, you're talking five, ten miles of just yep. what looks completely flat. And then you come up over a bridge, and there's a 200-foot canyon that, like, drops straight down where there's a river. And from just standing there looking at it, you'd never see it. And so... It makes sense, like, trying to hunt the plains in eastern Colorado that, that deer can hide, that it would be a lot more difficult to get back. And, um, I mean, I guess I guess it's a positive and a negative. The deer can hide, but also I'm sure you're using those little dips and depressions to get closer without being spotted. Yep, that's exactly right. You, you use um, 
you use the terrain to your advantage. Um, there's times where, you know, it, it's a whole different game when you're hunting with a rifle um, for me. And, you know, in some hunters, I mean, um, it still takes, you know, an accurate shot if you're rifle hunting. And I've seen a lot of people that do not, are not capable of, of making good shots, you know, past 200 yards, which seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things, but bow hunting, I mean, to be able to get in there on them, um, it takes a lot of patience, um, but it takes good judgment um, because you, you can, if you blow out, you know, if you blow out a, a good mule deer, you may not see him again um, for a week or more. Yeah. Um, he, could, he could jump the fence, go to another property. Um, so, you know, I made a lot of errors as a inexperienced hunter um, by going after deer, I had no business going after, you yeah. know, great deer, but when you can't win, when you can't, when you can't get into, you know, whatever your comfortable shooting range is. Like for me, I do a lot of products at long range. Um, I didn't so much last year, but the previous years I was shooting 80 or 90 yards and I have a five pin site, 30 set up 30 to seven yards. And I was teaching myself holdovers. This is before I, I just, I had not gotten into, and I still haven't got the, the uh, a site where you can dial it, you know, from 10 yards to hundred. Yep. I don't use, that. Um, I may think about it this year, but I taught myself the holdovers, you know, here's what 80, here's what's 90. Um, but I practice those distances, not because I want to take a shot there, but my shoot, my shooting um, groups at 60 yards are tiny. You know, you're, you're shooting, inch and a half group at 60 yards yeah. because I'm sitting at 90 yards, um, getting used to holding steady and, you know, it's not punching the trigger and those kind of things. Um, but you had to sneak in, sneak in bow hunting to get into your comfortable range, whether some, some people that's 30 yards, some people at 70 yards. Um, you got to figure out if you can, if you can get to that spot. And if you can't, I've learned, you know what, don't go, you know, yeah. this is not a going to win. And I'm risking bumping them and I'll just back it out and just leave it. And I, I just realized you, you can't get in there. Um, just don't do it. And that, you know, that's one of the things I've had to teach myself patience um, over the years. And I didn't at the beginning. And I, I bumped out some gorgeous deer, um, big, big deer, you know, 200, 200s and up um, just by, you know, lack of experience and, and, um, understanding of the situation yeah i feel like that's probably part of the nice thing about being a self-taught hunter is those lessons that you learn they probably stick with you pretty good when you watch an animal of that caliber bound away you're like all right now i know <laughs> like i'm never gonna do that I'm never gonna make that mistake again you know what said i'd like to say that's true clearly i'm a little dense in the head because i've <laughs> mistake a few times um the same same type of mistake but uh you definitely learn i mean i've made hundreds of mistakes hunting um and i have learned from all of them but some of them are a little harder to uh to to understand and like i said i've, I've made the similar mistake again but um it's you know it's i like i really enjoy the solo hunt um you know it's just it's my peace and quiet out there it's it's great and but I do wish that I had some people along that could see the, the uh, ridiculous things I've done. Uh, <laughs> so you can, you can tell these stories, but unless someone actually witnessed it, 
um, they don't really comprehend how dumb that is. <laughs> that's that's funny. We we always like when we're sitting around at elk camp or even when my buddies get together, we start telling stories, and it's fun when you know somebody else in the group was there with you because they're like, dude, I I remember all of it. But when you don't have any type of video evidence or nobody else was there with you, they look at you like, really, did that happen? And I'm like, God's honest truth. It did. And we've got dozens of stories like that. Um, but so when, so you're out, you're out hunting for muleys in the East and say you're, you're driving around in the morning and glassing or even in the evenings, is there like a certain pattern that you've found these mule deer are on um, when you're hunting them in the plains, like if if you see one bed down maybe at night, can you go back to that same spot and potentially get on them in the morning? Um, no. Um, so these, you know, they they, of course, you know, like whitetail, you know, big smart whitetail. They're you know they're gonna they're going to feed in the morning. Um, you know, when it starts getting light, they're gonna start walking back. Um, they'll, they'll start going back to their bedding areas and that bedding area could be anywhere from half a mile to, you know, I've seen them probably go almost even two miles from where they were feeding and watering. Um, we, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, not a lot of cricks and rivers, um, Eastern Colorado. So they water at at water tanks like cattle, you know, where, where people are pasturing their cattle and they'll have set up. They're going to, they're going to go, um, they'll go get water at the tanks. Um, you know, they're feeding on, on, uh, Corn, wheat, milo. Um, but yeah, once they'll they'll feed out. And as soon as it starts getting light, you know they're feeding out of the field back to their bedding grounds, and that's where you try to, you know, you you try to get when you're driving, um, you're trying to cover miles. You know, if if you you're looking to spot where you know there's a couple of good deer, um. But if you don't see them, you got to keep going. Like, that's what I do. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll put miles on. I may drive, you know, from one or two locations to drive and haul ass 15 miles, 20 miles to get to the next one. Just hopefully I can see them before they go back into the hills and are out of sight. Um, like I said, it's luck too. I mean, it's angles. I'll look at the same area from two different sides and stop, you know, you got east, west, north, south roads and I'll look from looking back to the east. I'll drive down south. I'll cut back to the east. I'll look at it, you know, looking back into it um, from the south and hopefully catching something. Um, but there's, like I said, they'll they'll feed out in the morning, go back to bedding areas. And if you don't catch them, you don't see, you don't see them, um, you go on to the next spot. Um, and then at night, you know, they'll come out. If it's just a normal day, you know, they'll come out an hour before, hour before sundown, start feeding uh, moving back to their feeding area. Um, so you, you kind of have windows. Yeah. Unless you know that there is a big deer in that certain area, you have a window to see them in the morning. You have a window to see them at night. And um, there's a lot of time during the day, unless you saw a good one um, or and you want to put a backpack on and go hike in and go look. Um, it's you have a you have short windows to try finding that deer if, if, if you knew there was a good one in the area. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of hunting. Like I, I'm used to getting out. Growing up, I would go sit in my tree stand in the mornings, take a couple hour break during the middle of the day, and go back out in the evenings. And that's all we would do. And then going out to Colorado, I mean, we spend basically the whole day out. When when we're hunting in the mountains, we get up, 
and we don't ever travel when it's dark out. Uh, my buddy that I learned how to elk hunt from, he always told me like, if you're, if you're driving at night or in the dark, you're missing a lot of country that you could be finding elk in. So we get out there and then we'll just sit in glass. I mean, we just move from spot to spot all day long in glass, but you're, it sounds like you're primarily just doing it in that morning and evening window trying to find them. And then do you have to, like when you go out after them, do you have to worry about thermals there or is that kind of non-existent since you're more in the plains and not in the mountains? By the way, that's a, that's a great, uh, great comment. Um, we have pretty consistent, pretty consistent winds. Yeah. You don't worry about the winds, uh, the, the temperatures or wind rising and falling. It's, you know, it's either going to be, it's going to be a North wind, Northwest wind. Um, so I will always, depending on, you know, first thing, you know, when I get back to the hotel at night or, you know, wherever I'm going to stay when I'm out hunting, I check, um, I have like three weather apps and I'm always, you know, just making sure, you know, knowing where I'm going to be, um, I look at wind direction and then I will, that'll dictate what I go look at the next day, knowing, knowing what the wind direction is going to be. Um, but it's usually pretty, cons- you know, it's, it's, if the wind starts out of the north, it's going to stay like that for hours typically. Um, but that'll dictate where I do go look for deer. And then even um, even if I choose, if I want to go after one I found, um, I got to decide, is that something where um, he's successful, uh, accessible due to the wind? Um, you know, because they always, I know how they want to bed depending on the wind direction. I know the areas they will go back and bed depending on the wind. You know, you, you know what side of the hills to be looking at them, yep. uh, looking for them on. Um, but yeah, we don't have the, the thermals is not an issue out east. Yeah. It's just, just the, you know, predominant wind for the day. And it does switch. Um, and I've been caught in situations where I knew the wind was going to be switching and I had to either, you know, make a play or I had to back out because I was going to, they were, they would win me. You know, I was right on the edge of good wind and bad wind. Yeah. Do, are they kind of like whitetails in the sense that they'll bed on a hillside with the wind coming over their back and they'll be looking out below them? Yep, absolutely. Um, they will, the bigger, more mature, I mean, so you have them early in the year, they're going to be, they're going to be batser groups. Yep. And then, you know, when the rut kicks in, um, you know, of course they're going to be doed up, you know, it could be a dozen does with them. Um, but it always seems like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through some some of the spots I hunted in last year, two years ago, and there was always that one doe that sat up on the biggest hill. Even though it, you know, it's kind of a flat bottom, there will be a few rises in there. There always was one or two does that sat up high that would always, you know, were always the eyes of the group, making sure that, you know, that, uh, and, and that big buck always, the big buck always knows where to, where to bet up. I mean, he's, he usually sets down lower, um, and he always has a couple does or, or you know, little forky bucks um, that are up higher. Um, God, they, I, I tell you what, they is as dumb as those deer can be. They can, they are really, really smart on how they set up and where they bed and how they bed with, you know, within a group. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called Bull Elk Beard Oil. If you've spent any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain, in the marsh, 
or in the woods, you've felt the effects of the wind, the sun, and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention, it smells great. So now my wife can't complain as much after I come home from a long week of elk hunting. Now I need to tell you, I've gotten to know Brian the founder over the past couple months, and he is an awesome guy. Brian made sure that all of these oils are made out of clean products right here in the USA. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community, whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions, or even helping donate money to cover the surgery cost of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy, and he makes an amazing product. So go check out bullelkbeardoil.com and be sure to check out the subscription options so that you don't have to run out of your favorite facial hair product. Plus, you can use the code NOMADIC and get 20% off your order. Yeah, they, I mean, I feel like I, I run into that with so many animals where I'm like, these are the dumbest, smartest things I've ever hunted. And I, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of like intellect that goes into it, but I think it's all instinct. You know, they've learned from their mistakes. They've, they've learned how animals can sneak up and get to them, whether it's, I mean, out there, I'm guessing it's primarily coyotes, maybe some bobcats, but like, they just know if I can cover 180 degrees behind me with the wind and I can cover the rest of it with my eyes, like I'm, it's almost foolproof. Like nothing's going to sneak in and get me, but that's probably where you've got to figure out that, that narrow window where the wind is almost wrong, but it's just right enough to where you can get close without them busting you. Exactly. Yeah. I, I played the wind a lot of times, like right on the edge, knowing where they were bedded. And I walked, you know, I was, I had the wind behind me and, but I knew I was just, you know, 30 yards, 40 yards off to the side, far enough that I could walk with that wind at my back at them, but I was just far enough off the edge where they shouldn't have winded me. And I've snuck in, I've gotten in that way. Um, yeah. There was no way of coming from the downwind side to them. It's just wide open flats. No way to do it. And I, I played the wind game. I've won. I've lost. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, Western Nebraska. I mean, we, you know, you have some good wins. I mean, usually they're consistent, um, you know, that eight to 10, 12 miles an hour, which is enough to, to cover this noise, as long, you know, as long as you're walking soft. Um, but it'll, it'll cover that noise, um, to where you can get in. You know, I, I, I never, I mean, you, it's, it's almost unhuntable, you know, in, in two, three mile an hour, four mile an hour winds, yeah. because, you know, it's dry, dry grounds. So you need some wind. You just don't want too much wind to where you can get a clean, you know, good shot with a bow. Yeah. Have you, have you dove into the world of like silhouettes or decoys at all? I know there's. Anytime I hear people talking yep. about planes like that, I think of those guys that have like the ultimate predator decoys clipped to their bows and they're just, they might just look like a cow or an antelope or another buck that's coming in and it allows them to close that distance quite a bit. So I have, uh, I have all those, all those decoys. My, my first one was a Montana decoy for elk. Um, but then I did get uh, the ultimate predator um, I think it's, it's Danny Ferris that, that owns it now. Um, I bought mine prior to him purchasing the company and I actually want to, he's just South of me here in Colorado. I really oh, want nice. to pick. Um, I personally have not had success with them. 
Um, I know they work. I've, I have friends that have used them. I just haven't, um, I have not done well with, with decoys, um, except for antelope. Um, but I carry it with me. Um, I do, you know, I'll strap them on my bow. Um, but I, mine is more of a trying to be unseen yeah. has worked for me. I just, I try to sneak in, I crawl in. Um, it, it, it's funny. So before like Sitka came out with their knee pads, um, cryptic, I'm a big cryptic guy. Cause like I said, I, I got into cryptic camo. Uh, I kind of go about my own way. I don't want to be like everyone else. Yeah. So when cryptic first came out, I, I bought their, all of their gear. Um, and they had the slide in pads, yeah. um, to cover your knees because it's, you know, you got sandburrs, goat heads, cactus. I mean, and you're cr- literally crawling on your hands and knees to get into position to get a shot. Um, before any of that gear really became popular, a buddy and I would go buy um, plumber's knee pads and we'd strap them on, strap them on the outside of our, of our pants. Yeah. Because, I mean, I can't ha- count how many times I'm sitting in a hotel room for two hours picking sandburrs, like thorns out of my knees and elbows. Oh, gosh. Um, so, then I, so then I went and got, I remember, um, some hard-knuckled Oakley gloves. And, you know, I was literally like, you know, put my fist down and then walking with, with, with those plumber knee pads to get in. Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, your conversation about the decoys, I think they work. I have not been successful. And I, I want to talk to Danny Ferris about it and maybe kind of pick his brain on the situations to use them. Um, but I know a lot of people kill big deer with them. I just have unfortunately not been lucky with it. So I am, I, I go about the, the path of not being seen and just try to sneak in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I talked with, I talked with the gentleman at the ultimate predator booth in at the hunt expo in salt Lake last week and okay. was just picking his brain, but he did a lot more mountain hunting. And so he was telling me like, I don't use it to sneak into animals, but what I'll do is I'll call. Like if I'm doing a cow call during elk season and that bull comes in, he might hang up at a hundred yards or 80 yards until he sees what it is that's making the noise. And he's like, at that point, hopefully I've got the, the elk decoy up. And he's like, man, I'll just flick the ear a little bit, give it a little bit of movement. And he's like, nine out of 10 times that bull sees the elk, sees the cow elk after hearing that the cow calls and it'll come in and close the distance to 40 yards, 20 yards. He's like, I've had him as close as five yards and they keep adding. I mean, he was showing me the differences in, uh, the, the most, the two most recent models of the ultimate predator stuff. And now they've got the clip on eyes that you can put on. They're actually like a three dimensional (laughs) bead and it gives like a very realistic eye look. And he's like, we just keep adding little things like that to make it more realistic. But he said the movement, once you have an animal coming in from a call, just like flicking the ear or just kind of turning it 10 degrees to make it look like it might be looking a different direction. He's like, that's all it takes. But again, that was when you're calling to an animal, not, not necessarily sneaking up on one. Uh, when you're hunting though, do you do any calling? I mean, or I've only mule deer hunted a couple times and I've never called and I didn't know how responsive they are to calls in comparison to elk or even, even whitetails. I, I don't call. Um, I 
gone with friends that have that have got have, have a like a black tail mule deer call. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll you know I'll try to get them to stop. Um, but yeah, I don't do a lot of calling. Like literally, like I said, my kind of my game has always been find them, sneak in, um, bed them. You know, I'll, I'll sneak in sneak in on on their beds and typically just wait for them to stand. I mean, I, I, I feel like from what I've learned, um, you know, from the time they bed, you know, I give them two hours to three hours before they'll probably stand up and, and scrape around a little bit, pee, readjust. Um, but I, I play the waiting game and that's worked and not worked. Um, a friend of mine down in Southwest Kansas, this family, and they kill some big deer big muleys, big white tails. He taught me a lesson probably 15 years ago that he carries rocks in his pockets Mm. and he'll toss them over the deer. So I start to, when I learned that from him, um, I'm like, man, that's, that's great. So every pocket, like my front, right, front, left, I put about four rocks, you know, big enough, not too big, but big enough that'll make noise. And especially in the situation like when I know wind, wind is changing and I can't get out, um, I will toss a rock over the top of them, you know, and try to land it, you know, 10 yards, 20 yards past them. And sometimes I'll stand up to look and you get a good shot that way. Um, I've also blown, I, I blew out a monster doing that. So now I, as long as I don't have to worry about a wind change, um, I, I typically will try to wait them out um, to get, to get them to stand on their own. But, you know, something's going to happen if I see a coyote coming, um, you know, if someone's picking the cornfield, you know, right, right next to it, sometimes that'll booger them out. Um, but I have, I have tossed rocks when I do the wind was going to change. And I, I literally didn't think I could get out without blowing them out. Um, and I, I've had, let's say limited success with that. Yeah. Um, or got them in calmly. Um, but no, I like it getting back to the decoy, like I need to learn this. I, I want to reach out, reach out to them and kind of pick their brains on when to, when not to kind of thing. When does it work the best? Yeah. I've, I've been tossing around the idea of picking a couple decoys up and then I was thinking about it and I'm like, man, even, even just a cow decoy, like every animal in the country or for the most part, every animal in the country is used to cows and they know they're not a threat. And like for me, for coyote hunting or turkey hunting, I feel like I could get away with a lot more movement if I had a cow right in front of me. Um, you know, they're not going to think too much of it. But I've heard of people doing that for for antelope, especially. Um, yep, we I do. Guess, we do with antelope. Yeah, I mean, I've never. I still haven't hunted antelope, but I guess they're pretty curious animals. Like if they see something, they'll almost come and investigate it. So. <clears throat> before I started seeing all these really good decoys, um, like Montana decoys, they came out, you know, they, they've been out for 15 or 20 years or whatever. Um, I made a, um, I, I got some, <laughs> some corrugated plastic and um, made a antelope decoy. And I, it's so funny. I, I nicknamed him big fatty because I'm a big man. I mean, I'm six, six, you know, I'm, I'm much smaller than my football weight of three ten. Yeah. Now I'm like, but I made this giant um, decoy that would walk up, walk up on them, and it's worked. Um, I, I had a really nice 
uh, antelope buck years ago, uh, four or five years ago during bow season that decoyed him in from like 500 yards. Dang. I couldn't get a shot. Like he wouldn't slow down enough to where I could get a shot. Um, but talking about curious animals, like we would take just a white gym sock and flag them. We were flagging them and we'd <laughs> white gym sock, and they would come in. It's, it's insane. Mule deer are not quite as, yeah, they're, they're probably not coming into that, but during, you know, when we coyote hunt, you know, January, February, after big games over, um, when we're doing uh, distress calls, like, you know, rabbit distress calls and stuff, the, the mule deer does would come in. Yeah. They would come in from, I mean, we, we'd see them bedded off, you know, 800 yards and we're, we're, we're uh, coyote hunting. They come into 50, 60 yards and stomp yep. at us. And we're, we're coyote calling. It's, it's insane. So, I mean, I wish we'd get a buck to do that, but <laughs> I know that'd be so nice. I I've done that multiple times recently. I've been really getting into coyote hunting and, and I'll be out there blowing a call and, or, you know, playing it on the speaker and does come out in the field at, you know, 300 yards and they pop out and I'm like, they have no business being out here when it sounds like an animal's dying, but they come out kind exactly. of curious, like, Hey man, I've got, I've got fawns of my own or like I've got to make sure that this thing's not coming after me next. And yeah, the, the curiosity of animals obviously can get them in trouble, but you don't see that curiosity out of many big mature bucks. No, no, you, you, I, I've never seen it like that, but no, those does, they'll come right in. I, I don't know. It's like the motherly instinct in them or they're just trying to get, identify what the problem is. I yeah. don't know. Well, and I could, I, I can see that even like in relation to humans, I feel like if you get like an old man and he hears something going on, he's probably going to be like, eh, they'll figure it out. I'm not interested. But then you get like, (laughs) if I think about my wife or my mother or my mother-in-law, if they hear something going on, they're like, we need to go check that out. There is something wrong out there. We better go figure it out. And I, it must just be the same thing with animals. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. But you're right. The, the old man, he's not, he's not going to change. Yeah, he's not, he's not changing. Let someone routine. else deal with it. <laughs> exactly. Do you, uh, do you have anything that is like on your bucket list that you really want to go try after, after the experiences you've had in Colorado? Is there a different type of hunt or a different place that you really want to experience? Um, yeah. So I, I was never really into like mountain goats, big horn, that kind of stuff. Um, some buddies have been, have been drawing uh, my good, my buddy, Ryan, um, he's got the grand slam on, on sheep. Um, so, so that's, that's one of those things I've, I've kind of like, you know what? I, I think that's my deal. Um, I'd like to go hunt um, a brown bear with my bow. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, it, it, that's such an expensive hunt. Um that I, I don't as much as I would like to hunt it with a bow, you know, I don't want to go spend 20 grand and yeah. then, come, you know, come away with, with nothing. So it's like, you know, I, I guess that'd be a rifle hunt. Um, but I'd like to go hunt a brown bear. Um, and I'd like to, now I'm like more intrigued by going forward, like a big horn. Um, those are kind of, those, those are a couple of things that just never were really on my list. You know, like Africa to me, I just have no interest in going there. Yeah. Um, I got a bunch of cool plains hunts. Um, 
but it's just that's just not been a bucket list but a big brown bear and a and a bighorn sheep or that's on my list yeah those two are on my list man i've watched those videos of guys shooting shooting coastal brown bears or even interiors with their bow and i'm like holy cow i've been up pretty close to them i just can't imagine sending an arrow at one and then just hoping you know that it it goes the other way or it's a well enough place arrow that it doesn't make it to me before it goes down um yeah that's that's a whole different that's a whole different level now i have i have told myself before i ever paid for a guided hunt or a non-resident hunt like that i would just move up there for six months <laughs> and become a resident and not have to do it um do it through guys. i thought the same i thought the same thing um you know same thing like, like canada like yeah. for, so seeing those big those big muleys they kill up in alberta um you know for non-residents you know we, we have to hunt i don't remember how far up but you you don't get to hunt the southern part you have to go farther north yeah. um in like saskatchewan and alberta i thought god i should just move there you know renounce my residency <laughs> um but now there's there's definitely there's a few of those things i, I would love to hunt um like i said it's, it's just been hard for me to want to go hunt other states because I've been so lucky hunting big mule deer. It's like, why do I want to go back to Iowa and hunt a whitetail? But, you know, these yeah. are things now, the older I've gotten, I've, I feel like I've I've taken some beautiful big animals. And now it's like, you know, I need to, I need to start branching out because I, I, it's, to me, it's not, it's not taking the animals anymore. Um, it's the experience. And while I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, luckily I'm in good health and great shape for 51. Um, beat up person you know my body's beat up but it's healthy I'm like i should i'm gonna start going to some of these other states and going and experiencing new mexico you know western south dakota wyoming montana utah like those are some of the states now i want to start getting into um yeah. and you know you know i'm on instagram and through that you know starting to meet some people for some other areas and you know i want to start picking their brains like i know people could pick their brain pick my brain on like colorado but I want to start picking people's brains in some of these other states and, you know, where to go, you know, cause that's the whole thing. It's like, it's, I guess you call it the barrier to entry. Um, yep. What getting into where to go. I mean, there's places everyone can hunt in different states, but are they good? You know, and it's, and like I said, it's not, it's not about taking animals so much anymore. It's like, I want to go see the country, but I also would like to be in a place where I can go hunt, you know, good quality animals. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been toying around the ideas of a couple different places like Alaska to me. If I'm going to, if I'm going to leave the lower 48, Alaska is the route I'm going. My wife is a hundred percent in on Hawaii. Well now hearing about all the different hunting opportunities in Hawaii, even yeah. I'm like, man, watching that. I think it was the latest season of meat eater where they go out and they're hunting goats in what looks like a giant grassland on, on the big Island. I'm like, man, I could, I could go do that. I'd be, I'd be all about, all about yeah. that. You wouldn't have to suffer nearly as much, but then again, I always like being more cold than I do, than I do hot when I'm hunting. I'd rather be freezing and have to warm up than sweating and yeah. have to cool down. So. Uh, absolutely right about that. No, there, it is cool. I, I, like who would have ever thunk Hawaii? Yeah. But you really, you see some beautiful train you see, and I used to go there for work quite a bit. Um, but you just, it's, it's really cool stuff. Cause you know, people have mis misconceptions about 
different areas of hunting um, or even just hunting in general. I mean, you look at like Africa, people think, you know, they, they, they name, they, they call people trophy hunters. Yeah. And they think trophy hunting means killing an animal, taking a head and leaving the meat to rot. They don't understand like that is not, I consider myself a trophy hunter. Yeah. And say what every animal, and I know everyone's different, but like you, when you, when you take a life hunting, like I sit down, my friends know me well enough now, you know, we high five, but they always give me like a minute to myself. Cause I, I was, you know, I get emotional when I, when you, when you take an animal like that, yeah. big animal. And I, I, I kneel down, I give thanks. And they, you know, they give me, they give me that minute to myself. And then it's like back to high five and hugging, thanking them, um, you know, sharing. Um, but yeah, it's hunting is such, it's, people's perception of it is such nonsense because almost all the hunters I know are good people and they love the animals. You know, I take more photos. I have hundreds of photos of awesome animals that, you know, I haven't even shared, you know, I kind of got into Instagram a few years back and I took a break. Um, but I have such cool animals or such great pictures of sunsets, moons, the birds, jackrabbits, like all these things. And that's what most hunters are. Yeah. Like we love, land and we love the animals and i wish more people understood that and, and there wasn't this false narrative out there about trophy hunters because trophy hunters yeah that's exactly what i am and i eat every ounce of it yep. and i show people and i have i smoke it and you know 10 people come over and it's you know it's 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 celebrating celebrating that animal yeah yeah i think if if hunters could be more vocal about their love for the animals and not just the love for the hunt, it would go a long ways in the eyes of uh, the general population. Like I've had conversations with, with vegans or I think pescatarians, I think there's, they're the ones that only eat fish. Um, but they're like, how do you not just ball your eyes out when you shoot an animal? I'm like, don't get me wrong. There is some serious emotion going on when I walk up on an animal that I've just, taken the life of it like it didn't give its life for me to eat like I took it and I was like but I look at hunting as a whole and I realize how much it's done and how how different states are having turkeys and and wolves and moose and elk reintroduced because of the funding that comes from hunting I was like the amount of the amount of good that hunters do for the country and for wildlife as a whole far outweighs how many deer are taken in a given deer season. So yeah. um, explaining all of that to her and even like my buddies in Colorado, they started, I, they had been doing it long before I ever hunted with them, but they'll kneel down and put their hand on the animal and say, thank you and yours for providing for me and mine. And it's just kind of like, they'll take their hat off. They'll kneel down beside it. Just like put their hand on the hide or, you know, almost brush its hair and it's very it's a very intimate moment that most people just don't get to see they they just think of the gunshot or the arrow going through and the blood trail and the trophy picture at the end but there's so much more that goes into it yeah well said you're right i mean it it is my group of friends that i hunt with we're all the same we do we get a little you, you do you get emotional i mean you get choked up you know like you lost someone yeah, or loss of, and it's it is it's it's a it's a very spiritual, intimate moment. Yeah, um, and I and I, you know I, 
even my own family, you know, talking about it with them. And like, I didn't know that, you know, like one of my brothers, my mom, and, and it's, they, they had no idea like how, how much it affects me. Um, And it affects a lot of people. So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that's something we're kind of talking about for people that are listening to this podcast, because it is, it's not high fives, slamming beers, you know, it's, it is, you know, we're going to celebrate afterwards, but it's, it is a, it's a moment yeah. that, uh, that, that is, is, is touching. I tell, I tell people that, um, in talking with them, like it, when you, when you shoot a deer, it doesn't matter if you only had to walk 50 yards, climb up your tree stand and not really do any physical activity. Like you come back drained from a deer hunt once you shoot one and i really do think it's the swing of emotions that happen like the excitement when the deer walks in like the adrenaline dump and then all of a sudden it's over and you're like holy cow that just happened that that moment of like solitude or like kind of the somber moment once you actually walk up to it there's so much more that happens just in my mind like during those during those few minutes or the hour than a picture or even writing a story or doing a full podcast could ever get across. Yeah. You're, you're right about that. You were right. Um, well, we're, we're coming up on an hour here before we hop off. I want to give you a chance to do a couple things. Let's start off first with, um, sharing where people can find you and they can follow along with your journey or see some of the pictures from your adventures. Yeah. Um, so I, like I said, I joined Instagram oh, a couple of years ago and then I took a break. Um, my Instagram is jchrisman68. Um, yeah, it's funny. Some friends are like, why'd you come up with that handle? I'm like, uh, I don't even know. I guess 68 was my football number. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I, I like to post a lot of different things. Um, not just, you know, just not just the majority of my animals aren't, you know, that I've taken, I haven't even put on yet. It just kind of, I don't know. I like, I like having well-rounded um, from, from uh, sunsets and, and uh, uh, videos of just deer on their own to, you know, a few animals here and there and some, just some goofy things. Um, yeah. So Jay Christman 68. Um, I have a YouTube, but I, I really haven't posted on it to my deer or uh, elk hunt and a, uh, a bear, um, bear hunt. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really it. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't post a lot of content, but I'm, I'm starting to start to start to do a little bit more. Yeah. What, um, what is a last piece of advice that you would give? And normally I just let people go any direction with this and, and you can definitely have multiple, but is there any gear recommendations or advice that you would give people when looking for gear to do a hunt out West, like you're doing? Um, so I would recommend a spotting scope. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to spend, you know, thousands of thousands of dollars. Um, my first one was a Nikon. It was like $400. I got on like eBay or not eBay on like Amazon. Then I, I upgraded to a Vortex. Um, and then I, I've Night Force now, um, just just for better quality of glass. Um, Cause I, you know, I'm looking at deer two miles sometimes. Yeah. Um, 
I suggest uh, a good set of binos um, and then a bino harness. Um, like for me, spot stock, crawling through the grass. I, I, you know, I, I lived with just a strap on the back of my, uh, you know, my first set of heart, my first harness, and I was dragging it through the grass. You know, I got dust on them and everything else. Yep. Um, so I now have an enclosed uh, boy, uh, harness case. Um, I would, uh, um, I would get, so I, I use an iPhone. I got a, a phone scope. Yep. Um, and what I'll do is I'll attach that um, to my night force and I get a lot of pictures and I'll video it and, you know, learn how to focus in and zoom in with your, with your spotting scope and not over zoom with your, with your phone, because it's going to kind of, it's going to kind of ruin the, the, the picture quality of the safe you're zoomed in. Um, and I, I study a lot. Um, so I always film every animal I'm looking at and I pull the phone off and then, you know, really pick it apart to make sure, you know, you, were you looking for, you know, this four by four that had two kickers or was this just another four by four, you know, and, and you, you really want to, before you, before you can make a, a hike, whether you're in the mountains or, you know, in the plains, um, I really try to get as much video and photos of an animal and then study it on the phone before I make a choice if I'm going to go after it. Because when you're looking at a deer at a mile, mile and a half, I mean, a 170 inch mule deer, um, or 200 inch mule deer at a mile and a half, you can't really tell I mean, You can tell if it's a good deer framed right, but yeah. um, glass to really decide, is that the one you were looking for? Is that the one you saw the day before, before you go in and search about, you know, bouncing through a bunch of land. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't care about the effort, you know, as far as the hike goes, um, but you don't want, you know, you want to know if that's the one you were looking for um, before, you know, before you mistakenly think it's something else. Yeah. And that's safe lot of time over the years um and then you'll get a good backpack like for me i would look i'll throw like tripod spotting scope um i'll throw everything in a packet i'll take off and i could be gone all day um so you know a good uh, a good backpack that's got the things that you need pockets um the outside straps, you can strap in your tripod, you know, all those kind of things. I mean, really think about that in boots. Um, I, I think you were talking about, I was listening to one of your podcasts about going out hunting, you know, people mind boots and then they never broke them in. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you, when you're in the mountains, you got, you got blisters on your heels. I mean, it, it's not a fun experience. No. Like out East, I don't, you know, I, I have mountain boots. And then I have Eastern Plains, almost like they're bird hunting boots that are soft bottoms um, to quite kind of limit the noise um, and how you step. Um, but yeah, like optics is the biggest thing. Um, and then, you know, like um, I have range finding binoculars. So that's one thing, one upgrade I made uh, a couple of years ago because, um, you know, trying to, trying to handle a, a, a um, Range finder and binos having two separate ones is tough. Yep. Um, so if you can, you know, if you have the, you, if you have the financial means to do it, I would get one that, that is uh, binos that has the range finder in them. Um, Vortex makes a good one. I use Vortex razor um, or it's a, I think it's a theory. Yep. Um, like uh, Swarovski, I mean, a lot of them now are coming out with them. Um, but I would, I'd suggest range, range finder inside your binos is a great thing. Cause it's one less, piece of equipment you have to worry about grabbing um I, yeah, 
I will okay. say, I know you said you don't switch gear a whole lot, but I did just check out the brand new range finding binos from Vortex at uh, the Hunt Expo. And now they are getting, they've got weather data built in. So you can actually get weather data on your binos, wind direction, uh, altitude, barometric pressure. I mean, That's there's crazy. some crazy stuff. And I just bought mine. I've got the same Fury 5000s. Um, yep. I bought those a couple of years ago. And I'm like, oh, man, if I would have waited two years, I could have got these ones. Um, but there's always yeah. opportunities to upgrade. Yeah. Hey, hey, Vortex, why don't you, uh, Vortex, we're giving you a shout out. Maybe uh, maybe you can uh, work a deal for Dan and I on, on the new first. Yeah, I'll come. I'll come out and I'll film you chasing after one of these two hundred and thirty inchers, and we'll we'll be spot sporting the the spotting scopes and the range finding binos. That, there, there you go. I like there that idea. Go. Well, man, I really do appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate you hopping on the call with me, and we'll have to do this again. Hopefully, um, hopefully, I can get out there and do a hunt. Like I've all, I'm I'm like the typical non-resident Colorado hunter, you know, I'm building up points, hoping to get uh, specific units. But the one thing I do burn my points on every couple of years is mule deer and I'll get them for the same unit that I elk hunt. But I think I need to branch yeah. it, like kind of step away from doing that and maybe start looking at doing some more planes hunting. Cause that sounds like a, a good time. I'd, I'd be happy to, uh, I'd be happy to help you um, with that. Um, one thing I, I didn't mention is, so I guide for a buddy of mine, Eastern Colorado Doors. Um, it's Jim Hubbard. Um, we may have to talk about trying to get you out for like an antelope hunt. Oh, that'd um, be awesome. Really? I mean, it's, you know, first time it's probably better to go with a rifle. Um, I just bow hunt him now. Um, it's kind of a, it's the last thing on my list of hunting each year it would be that during during late summer, uh, early fall. But no, we, we should we should talk about that because Jim does a great job with great antelope and mule deer. I mean, big mule deer. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, the antelope is a, a more inexpensive kind of hunt. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we could, you and I could figure out something like that. Um, yeah. I could, we could get something done there, but the elk hunt or the, uh, the deer, whitetail mule deers, it's, it, you know, Eastern Plains and to go with the guide is pretty expensive. I mean, they're, they're well worth, um, you know, depending on the land they have, but, uh, yeah, we can talk offline about, getting you out for a, I think we can figure something out for an antelope hunt for you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I've been, I've been waiting. I, I almost was on an antelope hunt and my wife would have had the tag. She ended up getting, uh, we got her three different tags in Colorado before, before we knew we were moving. And so she got an antelope, a mule yep. deer and a bull elk tag. And then we ended up moving and That's not awesome. making it back for the fall. And so I was like, dang, there's just so many life changes going on, but Hopefully I can get out and do a hunt like that with her. I mean, yeah. she's, she's been getting more into it. She's definitely not sold out like I am. I mean, it's like, she'll do it to make me happy, but <laughs> I do it because it makes me happy. So right on, right on. Well, sweet man. Uh, um, I appreciate it. And yeah, let's stay in touch. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. Hopefully you guys took a ton away from that. I mean, Every time I think about hunting mule deer, I don't think about like going out in the plains or the sand hills or some giant grass meadow. I think about being up in the mountains, but based on the animals that he's found, and it makes sense. I mean, if they're near ag, like they're going to have great food, but 
he's getting on some awesome deer and hopefully I can get out there, connect with him and uh, he can teach me a little bit more about his ways when it comes to pursuing these monsters. So hopefully that was informative to you. I am super pumped right now. Not only is this episode um, airing, but also I am gearing up for a Texas hog hunt. I'm going down there with a guy named Jordan and a group called Hunts for Heroes. And so they're already down there. I actually just got off the phone with him right before creating this outro. And man, I'll be down there in like 48 hours. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Anyways, until next time, guys, always choose adventure and God bless.